Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Today, meet three people who've experienced intense conditions of solitude. A contestant on the reality show alone lasted 89 days in the Canadian wilderness. How did she feel like she stayed connected with her family? Before I left, we talked about, okay, at this same time every day, we're going to stop and think about each other. And she said, I'm going to send you some warmth. And what goes through the mind of a caretaker at Yellowstone as he settles in for the winter, alone for months in the park? The knowledge that you are a prey species enhances your attention to what's over the next hill. And hear from a Connecticut man who spent almost 30 years in solitary confinement on what he thinks about that kind of incarceration. I don't think there's any way that you can reimagine bondage and how to better put someone in bondage to make that bondage a little bit more comfortable for them. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Ask someone how they feel about solitude, and their answer will probably tell you a lot about them. Maybe they contract and recoil at the thought of being pinched off from society. Or maybe they breathe a deep sigh of relief at the glorious prospect of feeling freed from the maddening crowds. Well, today you're going to meet three people who spent a great deal of time alone in extreme circumstances, both by choice and not. What did it do to them, for them? Later, you'll meet a man who spent almost 30 years in solitary confinement here in Connecticut, who made it out just as the laws around solitary changed in our state, a cause he championed himself. And you'll hear reflections on solitude from one of the last winter caretakers in Yellowstone National Park. But first, there's this reality show by the History Channel called Alone. I love this show. Here's the idea. Ten wilderness experts are dropped off in a remote location miles away from each other. They have a small selection of tools, a couple cameras they've been taught to operate so they can film themselves for the show. And if they want to give up and go back to their families and very warm beds, they have an emergency transmitter. And medical specialists arrive randomly and, of course, without any warning, to check up on them and see if they're still fit to continue on with the show. The last one standing gets half a million dollars. The runners-up get nothing but a good, long story to tell. Now, Callie Russell from Montana was on a very special version of this show, Season 7, in which the prize was a million dollars for whomever could last a hundred days along the shore of Great Slave Lake in Canada's Northwest Territories. Temperatures would get as low as negative 40 degrees. She and nine other contestants were dropped off in September 2019, just months before the pandemic, when solitude would be a new kind of challenge for so many of us. I asked Callie what kind of things were on her mind as the helicopter dropped her off and flew away. I experienced out there that we are connected to each other beyond what I realize, beyond what I think we typically think, especially in this age with, we have so much technology, we can just call each other or text or email and send pictures and video and all this stuff. But, you know, video calls, we're really connected in that way. And so knowing I wouldn't be able to talk to my family or my friends or my boyfriend for months and months and not just talk to them, but nothing, you know, no letters, no contact at all. You know, and I was worried about my family too, more so I was a little concerned how they would be doing more than how I would be doing. Cause I was like, I think I'll be fine. I've spent time alone before. I think I'll be fine out there, but I worry, will they be okay? Will they be worrying and not have that reassurance that I'm okay? But I found that especially to the people I'm closest with, like my mom, before I left, we talked about, okay, at this same time every day, we're going to stop and think about each other. And she said, I'm going to stop and think about you. And I'm going to send you some warmth. 
she's down in Arizona. So she said, <laughs> you know, every day at one o'clock, I'm going to stop and send you love and warmth. And if you're busy, it's okay. But just know every day at that time, I'm going to be sending that to you. And the cameras have a clock on them. So I knew what time it was because of the camera. And some days I could feel her so strongly. I was like, I just feel my mom's love right now. And just to know that we're connected, even without that telephone, without the internet, we were so connected to each other. You were on alone for 89 days. Did you ever feel lonely? Well, on, on alone, I didn't feel this this much, but some other times before I went on alone, when I would be camping by myself, it was in the, when the sun would set, the, the light would start to change and the sun would go down. I knew the long night was coming, potentially cold. I would just feel this great sense of loneliness and sadness. But these days we kind of have this thing that some writers, uh, Robin Kimmerwall, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, she uses the term species loneliness. And that's something that really resonates with me. I feel like we have this species loneliness because we're not as connected to the wild world that we once were. So when I was on alone, while I wasn't around any people, I didn't feel lonely that often because I actually felt this deep sense of connection, really. And I felt like I'm a part of this world. I'm a part of this life. I'm a I'm an animal moving on the landscape and I'm interacting with the other animals and we're all talking to each other all the time, the trees and the plants and the wind. It's like, there's all this whole other language out there that I was tapping into and feeling. And so I felt really alive and really connected and I didn't feel as lonely as I thought that I might. And you're on this really special show where nine other people are in this arena with you. Now, of course, you're you're separated enough that you will never run into each other. But I wonder how much you, at times, maybe wanted to connect with them or like thought of the other nine people that were in this arena with you. You know, sometimes I'd hear way distant sounds and like, you know, did someone just cut down a tree or what, you know, what's going on out there? And I, I wouldn't know what the sounds were. And I think maybe I could see their smoke. Maybe I could see smoke from a distant fire or smell it or something like that. But I didn't see any signs of the other contestants out there. But I would, you know, there was a lot of camaraderie on our season. And we spend a, about a week at this base camp before they all drop us in our spots by helicopter. And we, a lot of us became really close, you know, late nights around the fire talking about what brought us to that moment in life and these things. And so I would find myself thinking of the other, the other contestants who were becoming my friends and hoping they were okay out there because especially when it would get really cold or a big storm would be rolling in and it would be windy and the snow would be whipping up. I'd be like, gosh, I hope, I hope everybody's okay out there. I hope they have firewood. I hope they have food because we're apart and separated, but we're also kind of going through it, a similar situation. Of course, on Alone, you are uh, taught how to film yourself and you're given the cameras that you need. And, and that's a whole other conversation. But I wonder how much the cameras acted kind of like as friends. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. The producers that teach us how to do the show, because this is a really interesting show in that there's not a camera crew out there. And um so it is all self-shot, but they're asking these, you know, wilderness type people, these rural folks that don't really know how to film a show, basically giving it to us and be like, you guys are basically responsible for filming the show. Like what you film is the show or isn't the show, you know, was a challenge in some ways because we actually, I'm trying to survive. So taking time to talk to the camera wasn't always the best use of time. But as far as this spiritual experience, I guess, it really added this layer of talking it all out all the time and sharing, you know, really like these deep shares with this camera and this sort of element of surrender too. Like, I don't really know who's going to watch this or what parts of these are going to be sharing with people, but just putting it all out there on the camera, it, just knowing somebody will see it and knowing even though most, you know, 99% of what is filmed isn't aired on the show, but knowing there's that one editor 
that has to sit through all the footage and will see that and will listen to that. It was this interesting thing of speaking to that person and knowing someone's going to listen to this. And even though they aren't going to listen to it right now, they will eventually. And so it was connecting me with the wider world of people. There are times during uh, the show where some people come around for medical checkups and they come without warning, right? And all of a sudden, after however many days of total and utter solitude, you are surrounded by a couple people who are wearing very clean clothes and their bellies are probably full of delicious food. What was it like suddenly being around people for just a little bit of time? And then they just go. <laughs> the med checks were really interesting because it was weather dependent on when they would come, but it was, you know, every 10 days or every two weeks or something. So it was enough time to really drop into this particular state of being. Some participants really liked getting that just little bit of human interaction. I didn't like it at all because it would throw me off of my game, I guess, or just not, not really game, but it would pull me out of the mental place that I was in because I was really dropping in deep with that land and the experience. And then the people would come in. So there's an engine, whether it's a boat or a helicopter, you know, a helicopter would land in camp and whip everything up and like blow away all the tracks. And then these people come out oh. and there's a medical person asking questions, you know, okay, what have you eaten? Like, when did you go to the bathroom last? Like, do you have any, you know, injuries, all these questions. And then there's other people that are like grabbing the batteries and the memory cards and okay, is the camera working and all this stuff. And it's just like this whirlwind of activity and then they leave and they're gone. And also my senses are so alive. I can smell everything on the people as I smell all their lotions and laundry detergents and what they ate for breakfast. And like ever, I can just smell all this, this new information coming in and then they leave. And it's like, I have to just process all of that for a while. <laughs> and it took, it would take me a few days to kind of get back into the place that I was. And so the, the med checks were challenging for me. Being alone when things are difficult, is really tough. I'm sure there were times you very much wished you had your mom with you. But when things happen that you kind of want to celebrate, like basically any time you killed an animal. I'm feeling hungry. I hope we got something today. I hope, I hope. Oh my gosh. There's a rabbit in one of my snares. Oh my gosh. Snare got him perfectly around the neck. Oh. I am so grateful for this rabbit. Oh my gosh. Nobody was there to celebrate with you, right? So how did that affect you, not being able to share your joy with anybody? Oh, that's such a good question. The longer I was out there, I really felt somehow like the land was holding me. And witnessing me, there was somehow this element of being witnessed out there by, I don't know what it was, just, just other, this other sense, this other feeling, just the, I don't know, maybe it was the birds, maybe it was the trees, maybe it was the ancestors, you know, they're still there somehow, maybe, I don't know, you know, I'm not attached to a particular way of believing, but I did feel this sense of being witnessed. So I felt when I was celebrating, it was like the, the land could see and feel my happiness, you know? And so in that way, I, I guess it was okay. Um, and then of course there's the element of the camera who I get to share it with the camera and someone's going to see how happy I am about this. <laughs> you came really close to the hundred days, just 11 days remaining the frostbite on your toes was too much uh, of a risk to not begin medical treatment on. So even though everything else was fine, everything else was fine, and you were ready for more time, they had to fly you out of there and out of the competition. And I'm sure that when you returned to whatever was after uh, being out there, there were a lot of feelings. But how did it feel after 89 days of almost total solitude 
to be back around so many people and everything that comes along with them? For me, integrating back into society was actually way harder than being out on the land because it is so jarring. It's so different to come back into the society that I come from. You know, we flew into uh, the, the nearest town and went to the hospital. And I just remember every little thing, like just hearing recorded music for the first time, holding a pen, writing. I hadn't written in over three months. I hadn't heard recorded music or smelled. Um, I remember the cab driver had like a, you know, smell a cologne on and plus all the way the, the ca- just all these smells and then the signs and advertisements and the lights and just everything was just, just coming into me. I felt like, I felt like when I was out there, I sort of got washed clean and I was really pure sort of energetically and my thoughts, my mind, like where my mind was, was really calm and quiet and clear and open. And then coming into the, the town was like all this stuff was coming in and I, I couldn't not let it in. And just that, you know, even just seeing a, seeing a sign or seeing a billboard, it's like everything was becoming a part of me and like becoming part of me. And I didn't want that, but I, I didn't have any filters. I had no filters on. So it's quite, quite an overwhelming experience coming back into the world of the world that we all live in. Looking back on it all now, what do you think all this taught you about being lonely versus being alone? You know, I think sometimes we have this sort of stigma, like we we can only talk to people because people are the only ones that speak a language. But remembering that the rest of the world does have a language too, and the animals and the plants, and there's all this communication going on and remembering that you're a part of that too, and that you can just just be there and be present and remember that you're not alone in a, in a way we're never alone because we're really connected just by breathing, you know, just by breathing, our breath connects us to every, every other thing that breathes. It's kind of powerful to think about that. Why do you think you're so drawn to solitude? For me, I want to go spend time alone so I can be a better person. So I can be a better family member, be a part of a community. And I think that we really, as humans can gain a lot of wisdom and insight about ourselves when we do spend time alone. And then that makes us better when we are with people, when we are, you know, part of a group or community. And so I see the value in alone time to build better communities and more close knit relationships with family and friends, because if I'm a more self-aware person, which I feel like I gain more self-awareness by alone time, then I can be a better person for the, the people that I ultimately spend the most time with. Well, Callie Russell, thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much. It was quite an honor. When we get back, in the dead of winter, alone for acres, what goes on in the mind of one of the last winter caretakers at Yellowstone? Being out alone in grizzly country uh, sharpens your consciousness. Plus, what it's like being in solitary confinement for almost 30 years. It's a place where there's really no weapons involved to harm an individual. It's just all psychological. It's all what's going on in that person's head. And then that person reaches his or her breaking point. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. 
Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, that individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today we're getting to know some people who spent a lot of time, sometimes in extreme circumstances, alone, by choice and not. Later, you'll meet Ray Boyd, who spent almost 30 years in solitary confinement in a Connecticut prison. But right now, imagine Yellowstone National Park, closed for the winter and buried in feet of snow. For the past 50 years, there's been one man, alone, well, with his cats and his camera, tending to it. Steve Fuller spends a lot of time clearing feet of snow off the near 100 rooftops scattered on the grounds. I asked him to talk about what it's like out there. I'd wear out perhaps a half a dozen or more shovels. It made me a, a very physically strong person. And also, of course, I became very accustomed to spending my days up on the roofs by myself, chatting with the ravens as I worked. And it was a great opportunity I don't want to be pretentious, but it was a great opportunity for meditation, uh, for emptying my mind of all the white noise. Sometimes it was just empty-mindedness. There's a beautiful dance rhythm to working the saw. There's a great craft to cutting and removing snow, which gave me great pleasure. And there was what I called the song of the saw, as you swung it to cut the upright freezer-sized blocks, it made a noise, uh, the music of the saw. I was easily able to evade thinking about worldly things. And it, it extended further in terms of being totally out of contact with the maddening crowd. You know, there's the external racket, the external white noise, and then there's the internal racket the internal white noise, and the opportunity to escape both. Yeah, you remind me of something that my wonderful producer, Jessica, she's a poet, she loves words, and she looked into the origins of the word alone. And it goes back to circa 1300, when two Old English words, all and Anna, were put together. And this is the part that I love. It literally means wholly oneself alone. So I'm wondering... When you are alone, well, joined by lots of beautiful sounds and wildlife, but when you are alone, do you feel more holy yourself? Yes. Being alone, the social persona, the social mask uh, becomes uh, irrelevant. Sometimes uh, being alone during difficult times in my life here in Yellowstone. You know, I've looked deeply into the dark hole of my shadow. You know, looking back on maybe the thoughtless things one did in their youth, uh, the uh, perhaps hurtful things uh, inflicted on others, nothing profound, but an opportunity to look into who I was, who I'd become, you know, looking back into my childhood. Uh, and that was an opportunity I think I would not have had uh, other than the environment uh, in winter in Yellowstone. You know, I'm very fond of people, uh, but I've always believed that I have a wonderful balance. In the summer, I'm extremely engaged, overseeing a maintenance crew of 25 very different sorts of men, very engaged with uh, the social work world. 
And then comes winter. Everybody goes away. The park closes down. I can drive 40 miles to town and never pass another vehicle. So there's a real flip-flop uh, of extremes uh, from frazzled uh, social engagement to nil social engagement, other than with my cats. <laughs> right before you're about to be alone again, do you have any traditions? before this winter season starts? Historically, I, I enjoyed having horses for 25 years earlier in my life in Yellowstone. Uh, and I had the horse love of my life uh, for 20 years. And traditionally, at the end of the season, once I had overseen the winterizing of all of our buildings, Sh shuttering the windows, turning off the power, draining uh, the uh, water systems. Once my crew was gone, traditionally, I would take my uh, horse with a, and a pack horse and go into the remotest parts of Yellowstone that I could find, which was uh, 30, 35 miles from my house. Always I've skied or hiked or ridden my horses, I follow game trails. There's a certain, there's a magic to um, following game trails. One of my rules is if an animal trail doesn't go there, I probably don't want to go there. <laughs> and animals are so in touch with the landscape. And also my beloved horse, Ishwa, um, was an ideal companion. He doesn't talk. I always thought of us as a centaur, both mentally and physically. I didn't have to steer him or control him. I think he could read my mind, or maybe there were subtle physical. But at any rate, the the wonderful kind of meditation, I, and again, I hesitate to use the word, but uh, in tune with the horse. Sometimes we'd cover 25 miles on a game trail in a day at a trot, a steady trot, just being submerged in the surroundings, no clutter in the mind. I found myself decades ago being reluctant to hike or to ski or to ride my horses with others. That white noise, that babble, when I'm out on the horse or when I'm out on the skis or when I'm walking, I open up to the environment and let it all come in. The babble in my own head goes away, and I can avoid the babble of others. Uh, and that is a lovely kind of natural world socialization in a way. What kind of person would you say would be good at this work? Are you different than any other winter caretaker, or do you have something in common? You know, the mythology of the romance of being a winter keeper touches lots of people that live in very different worlds. I always say that the half-life of most wannabe winter keepers would be very brief. Taking the garbage out on the snowmobile can turn into a survival situation. Physically, uh, the life is extremely demanding. Uh, snowmobile is the only motorized means of travel. It's a 36-mile trip down to my car. Conditions can be extreme, dangerous. Uh, an old friend of mine, a park ranger, uh, was killed in a storm uh, checking the roads out over a high pass. And, and the, that's always part of the life. But Everything is so physical. And also the skill set required to function in that environment. It's my home, and I've had the good luck to survive uh, 50 years, 50 winters. I've sat on my front step and looked at the landscape I oversee, and there's a dozen, 15 incidents of people that have died within sight of my house. Being out alone in grizzly country, 
uh, sharpens your consciousness, your awareness, the knowledge that you are a prey species, enhances your attention to what's over the next hill. Uh, how's the wind blowing? Can she smell me or is she blind to me, the grizz? So, you know, that's a part of the transformation of one's attention. Uh, you're not distracted by the babble. What would you say to someone who isn't comfortable being alone? I think that's a common circumstance, you know, throughout our history, even going back to our primate ancestors, we were social beings. But still, many of us fear silence. Many of us fear being alone with ourselves. I'm not sure why, but I, I sense that it's common, maybe almost universal in modern urban world. The, the necessity that many people find to have music or BBC or you know, some kind of constant white noise, uh, the television always on, even if they're not engaged or watching it. Uh, it seems to me that it's a barrier uh, to any kind of insight or thoughtfulness uh, about these critical, um, you know, during our brief time on the planet alive, it's an opportunity that many people ignore uh, to communicate and to come to some kind of understanding of themselves. Maybe it's a numbness that makes it possible to live in these ghastly environments that most of us live in. And I'm, I guess that's my perception of urban environments, crowding, speed, distractions, congestion, it requires a certain degree of shutting down your perceptions. Uh, and I, I think of it as numbness. Steve Fuller, thank you very much for all you do and for talking with me. My pleasure. After the break, what's it like being home in the backyard on a beautiful spring morning after almost 30 years of solitary confinement? The birds were... Uh amazing i got to wake up to birds chirping it was something that you don't you don't hear being in a facility that has you you can't open a window for 29 years that was my hardest part of being incarcerated being removed from nature i'm kyone wolf this is audacious be right back You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast in absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. If you've never donated to this station before, that's okay. Public radio is available to everyone for free. But we do rely on listener support from those who are able to give. So join the community of supporters for Public Media Giving Days. And thanks. Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Earlier in this episode about solitude, we met two people who willingly isolated themselves for an extended amount of time. One for a TV show about survival in extreme conditions, and the other as a winter caretaker at Yellowstone National Park. Sometimes solitude is not optional. When Ray Boyd was 17 years old in New Haven in 1992, he knew he'd be imprisoned for murdering Tony O'Neill, but he didn't think that he'd be spending 22 hours a day in a cell, mostly by himself, for almost three decades. While he was incarcerated under those conditions, he co-founded a program called Skills of Socialization, and he was a leading mentor in the TRUE program. Both of these are aimed at connecting with younger inmates and reducing recidivism. 
We recorded this conversation on April 22nd of 2022. He'd only been home for five months, and you'll hear a bit of a breeze in his audio because he was speaking to me from his backyard out in the sun. I asked him to talk about how solitary confinement is defined. The department has found a way to play semantics with what solitary confinement is and what it isn't based upon words. So they'll say uh, administrative, say they'll use terms like uh, administrative segregation. They'll use terms like close custody. But when they use the term general population, it's not supposed to be associated with solitary confinement. And I was a house in Cheshire. And Cheshire is one hour a day a wreck in the morning and one hour a day a wreck at night, which means that you're in your cell 22 hours a day, which is solitary confinement. However, for the general public, we have to use or they have to use these words to define and separate what solitary confinement is because they don't want the general public to see the torture that goes on on a daily basis within general population. If it's okay, I'd like to back up a bit and talk about what it was like to begin to cope with that much solitude. Because when you first get into prison, you know, you're a young person, you did a terrible thing, you are serving time, you are alone. And I'd like to hear what what did you hear? What did you feel? What did it smell like? What was it like, especially in the beginning? A lot of times it's it's just it's kind of hard to describe in, in, in a sense because there's so much going on in such a little a little space. There's so much going on in your head uh, as you as you fight and struggle to maintain your sanity around individuals that you're watching succumb every day. So I mean. The smells could range from anywhere to lemon oil, to bleach, to fecal matter on any given day because you don't know who has uh, become a victim of, of a psychological warfare, you know, that goes on in places of solitary uh, confinement. And I say psychological warfare because it's a place where there's really no weapons involved to harm an individual. It's just all psychological. It's all what's going on in that person's head. And then that person reach, reaches his or her breaking point. Or you'll smell fresh paint one day because they've used so much bleach and pine to eradicate the fecal matter from the walls or the doors that they sandblasted the, the paint off the wall. So now that whole cell needs a fresh coat of paint. So it's, it's very It's very difficult to describe and... I'm getting kind of emotional as I think back to it because there's also trauma that's associated with it. Reliving those whole experiences, reliving those 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 smells, you know, and having to be able to describe them and depict them to you. It's something that the public is is so far removed away from, but they need to be so close to because a lot of these individuals are returning back into the community. And we always talk about we want better individuals coming back into our community after they have served their time and paid their debt to society, but they're being released worse than they were before they went in. And it's not in a sense where they're going there to become a better criminal. They're going there and, be, and, and, and driven into mental insanity. This place is designed to break people mentally. The windows were designed to where you can only look out the window. You can't look to your left. You can't look to your right. You only look straight ahead. And straight ahead was you didn't see a flower. You didn't see a tree. You didn't see a piece of grass that came through a crack in the wall. You just seen a, a, a gray wall. So can you imagine just being somewhere so far removed away from society and the normal things of, of nature that you succumb to some, some type of psychological breakdown? I wonder if there were times where you felt that you deserved this kind of punishment. At one point or another, everyone has used the term it was written, right? 
And sometimes we use terms like, and they're cliche, only the strong survive. I have yet to see how I've been affected by uh, solitary confinement. Like I said, there's trauma associated with me experiencing other people's, you know, lived experiences. I don't, I don't want to see a man have to be sh- shackled and rushed to the shower because he has fecal matter all on him because staff has been treating him bad. Or because he just had a breakdown and can't take it anymore. He's been asking to call home and no one wants to let him out of cell to make a phone call. Just seeing fights and seeing individuals abuse each other because of because of the environment and what it creates. You have to, those are those are traumas that may come up at some point in my life when I don't know, or if they ever will. I know it's it's very emotional when I when I have the opportunity to speak to it. You can hear it in my voice how my words begin to quiver. So I'm holding back and suppressing some emotion because it's it's like peeling off a scab. You peel the scab and you get to the part where the flesh is raw and that's where it hurts. So you don't want to peel no more. So you change the subject. Well, if you at any point want to say next question. okay? No, I'm all right. And this is one of my my reasons for uh, committing myself to the Stop Solitary CT movement, because I know the retribution that goes on for guys that try to speak out from the inside. And I told the guys that once I got out, I would do everything in my power to be a voice for the people. I've lived it. I know what it is. And like I said, it's it's semantics on the DOC DOC part to say that general population is not solitary confinement. Yeah, we have northern clothes, but solitary confinement still exists within the Department of Correction. They move most of their they have individuals that are on chronic discipline in a unit with guys that are, quote unquote, general population that still suffer from extreme isolation. You have officers that won't let individuals talk to that individual because he's on chronic discipline, but you have them housed in a general population unit. Imagine what that does to the human psyche when you have someone that's so power struck, he's telling you, you can't talk to a person that you're looking right at unless you want a disciplinary report yourself. Did you ever feel like in solitary confinement that you were losing your mind? Yes, because, I mean, it, you, you, you start to contemplate, you start to think. I think um, if anyone says that they went there and, 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 and it came out unscathed <laughs> or, or, or they never thought that, like, you know, what am I doing here? Or you think, like, should you do something worse while you're there? You know, those thoughts are, all, are always crossing one's mind. You just have to have balance and not be able to react to the negative thoughts. Throughout your time, did you find better ways of coping with solitary? You know, like if you if you imagine how it felt when you first got in there and there was sort of the shock to the system, to your system, uh, versus the day that you got out, what does Ray on the day he got out know that Ray on day one didn't in terms of coping with solitary confinement? Oh, I definitely wouldn't have got involved in the things that that ultimately led me there. Like everything that I do now on the outside is for preventative measures. We've we've seen the effects of mass incarceration. We see how much uh, it has cost our nation as well as our state, you know, taxpayers dollars. So now because we, we see that it has had such an effect on us where we're trying to reimagine prison. I'm against it because I don't think there's any way that you can reimagine bondage and how to better put someone in bondage to make that bondage a little bit more comfortable for them. Um, am I against individuals serving crime for serving time for crimes that they commit? In fact, you know, I think that um, they should have to serve out time, but it's just not in, in me to find out uh, 
how to reimagine what that looks like. So I've dedicated my life to trying to or striving to put in place preventative measures so that individuals will never have to see the system to reimagine what it will look like. I'm, I'm the preventative measure. Allow my, my life experience to be something that stops you in your tracks and says, okay, there's another trajectory in life that my life should be on. When you got out uh, not long ago, what was that like? The birds were uh, amazing. I got to wake up to birds chirping. It was something that you don't you don't hear being in a facility that has you. You can't open a window for 29 years. So just being able to hear some birds chirp in the morning and you really want to open a window because you wanted to you wanted to ring loud. And you just it's just like getting back to yourself and getting back in tune with nature. I wanted to just ride up. 84 and see some of the full foliage because the only time you see it is if you're transferring from one facility to a next. That's the only time you'll see the changing of the leaves on the trees. That was my hardest part of being incarcerated, being removed from nature. And you and I right now are talking on a beautiful 75 degree day. You're outside. It's sunny. It's April 22nd. This is your first spring, basically, yeah. as far as I imagine you're concerned of your adult, as far as you're concerned of your life, right? This is my this is my first spring home. And um, it's a new life for me. I came home in the dead of winter. I guess that was a good thing. So, so much of, of, of my past is behind me. And then so many new things are are in front of me. I don't think there's anything that I can't do. I think the only limitations we have in life is those that we place upon ourselves. So I've just been striving to continue to do great things. And like I said, be a voice for the people and uh, just be heard. What was it like being around all these people too? I mean, everything from family and people that you're excited to embrace again, see again, smell again, uh, cook with again, eat with again. And also I imagine some people who you'd rather not brush up against too, because yeah. this is humanity. So what, what's it been like with other people now that you're back? With family, it, it, it's been great with, uh, and I, I use the term loosely when I say so-called friends. And I say that because I went to prison shortly after my 20th birthday and uh, the individuals that I associated with prior to my incarceration. I only knew for three or four years. A lot of my friends and true loved ones are still behind the wall. I've, I've grown decades with those guys, you know? So my bond and my commitment to them is far greater to the one I have or used to have with individuals in the street. And that's why I advocate the way I do. Because... Uh, the suffering that goes on. And I know that the individuals that I left are still suffering. I hear it in their voices when they call me. They're excited that I'm out. They're excited that they're able to talk to me. But there's still a lot of suffering going on. All right. So you are working with people in Stop Solitary CT on the PROTECT Act, which would establish standards to limit uses of isolation, and it would institute independent oversight over the Department of Corrections in the state of Connecticut. What do you say to people who don't like the idea of this bill? I know there's a lot of people that are against it. And those are people that haven't seen what goes on within the system. We live in a lock them up and throw away the key state. And something needs to change. And I think that once you see what stop solitary confinement is doing to bring about that change you'll think differently and you'll 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 support this bill well ray boyd happy spring thank you for talking with me thank you thank you my friend the only other thing i'll need before you go at, at any point a picture of you for our website and then i'll take care of the rest i'll let you know when this is airing and uh hold on i just got a message from barbara fair i'll read it to you 
Barbara Fair from Stop Solitary CT. Yeah. Good morning. Our bill was voted out of appropriation committee this morning. So vote to pass the bill could happen Monday or Tuesday. So excited. For the for the Protect Act? Yeah, for the Protect Act. <laughs> How are you feeling? This is, I'm feeling great. <laughs> I'm feeling great. This is just uh, just got to be from uh, great news. <laughs> so yeah, a few weeks after we recorded this conversation, the Protect Act, which was jointly drafted by the Connecticut Department of Corrections and Stop Solitary CT, was signed into law with bipartisan support. Isolated confinement now isn't allowed to be used for more than 15 consecutive days or for 30 days total within a 60-day period. And now as a result of this law, there's more transparency and independent oversight over Connecticut state prisons and jails. You can head on over to ctpublic.org audacious where we'll have a link to the book that Ray Boyd wrote, Mind Over Matter, How I Became the Model Inmate. You'll also find photos that Steve Fuller took during his winters at Yellowstone and a link to the History Channel website where you can watch and fall very much deeply in love with the TV show Alone. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, a Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks this week to Todd Wilkinson from Mountain Journal for putting us in touch with Steve Fuller. Subscribe on whatever app your thumb reflexively goes to on your phone when you want to listen to a podcast, and you'll see some other episodes. Like, if you really liked this one, and I know you did, you might really like the one we did about vows of silence. You'll hear the voice in my head as I tried it for a week, and we talked with one guy who didn't speak, with the exception of one time, for 17 years. And thanks for leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps people find us. And you can send me your ideas and thoughts and poetry to Kion Wolf on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>